Hello, everybody. Welcome to Faded Mates. I'm Jen Reads Romance. And I'm Sarah McLean. Hi, everyone. Well, it's like six degrees here. It's really cold. So it was actually a really good day for me to be reading the Deep Kiss of Winter book because I was really feeling it. I was. You you were wishing that you had a ice dildo? <laughs> no, I'm just going to jump right in. <laughs> I was like, and scene. No, I, I had a I, long I, conversation last night about ice dildos because I don't get it. But we'll no. get there, I think. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, I will say it's – well, because here's the thing. Like, we – that's – the book is so inexplicable because she, like, loves it, all mm. the cold. And here it is. I'm, like, living in my own little polar vortex in Chicago in the past 10 days. And the entire time, I was just like, no, Danny, no. <laughs> all right. So, uh, as Jen said, this is Fate of Mates, uh, episode eight. And uh, we're finally here, you guys – to everyone who has tweeted us and emailed us and commented on the website and Instagrammed us and said, I don't understand why we didn't start with The Warlord Wants Forever. Here we are, you guys. We're going to do it. We're Jen and I have plans. We talked about it. We didn't leap right in. It was not willy-nilly. We had a plan. It was not willy-nilly. <laughs> But here we are. We're doing um, The Warlord Wants Forever, which is what Goodreads would, I think, call point five in the series, the the introductory novella of the series, and Untouchable, which is the uh, novella in the Deep Kiss of Winter duology with Cressley and, and Gina Showalter from Pocket Books, available wherever books are sold. But it's also um, we're doing a couple of a couple of really interesting things here. We're wrapping up the Roth brothers. Um, so we what began with um, Nikolai in uh, uh, Warlord, Warlord Wants, Wants Forever. Forever. Sebastian, we're going to see if I can do this in No Rest for the Wicked. Conrad in oh shit dark <laughs> dark desires at after dusk? night's edge dark needs at night's edge. One of the dark ones. <laughs> right. We'll never, you guys, we are never going to be able to do it. Ever. No, ever. Anyway, Conrad, my favorite, ironically, of the Roths. Uh, me too. And I was actually really happy to see him come back in yes, this. Yes, exactly. And, uh, and Murdoch um, in Untouchable. Four brothers, all war heroes um, from the 18th century um, who were nearly killed in battle and brought back as vampires to just be dreamy <laughs> men. <laughs> you know what's funny is we had talked about, like, you know, horns and claws and teeth or whatever. And I was like, eh, vampires. But every time I look at the the ranking spreadsheet, like, they really rank up there. I'm like, oh, no, I love them. Yeah. I think you're not – I think I love them, too. We've talked before about how I love a blooding – yeah, and uh, because I love it when they're they have them their moment of like their heart starts to beat and they literally think they're under attack. <laughs> Is this how love feels? Yes, <laughs> it's such like an overt metaphor, and I love it. <laughs> and um, I actually I I love everything about them. I love how cold they are. I love how um, how sort of driven they are in a way that a lot of the other lore creatures are not 
we see Rydstrom and Cade sort of as brothers, but these four are really the only like friends we see. Like the it's they're they're brothers in arms as well as brothers in by blood. I think that's true. I also think that the ties that bind them together are like interwoven at every single level. So it's like ties of family, ties of loyalty, ties of you know, like time, um, grief and regret, the fact that they lost their sisters. Yeah, they have such a deeply shared past in a way that like, uh, even when you have brothers, when you have sort of a brotherhood of men, when you think about like the Black Dagger Brotherhood or like, um, you know, the brother's sister of a... Stephanie Lawrence, or I wrote the my Rules of Scoundrel series is all connected by men. They might have a shared past, but they don't have the kind of depth of shared trauma right, that right. these four have. So uh, you and I both are raising only children, but I have two brothers. And I remember at one point, I think it was my older brother who said, like, no one is ever going to know what it was like to grow up in our family, but the three of us. And then imagine that that's the case over 300 years, you know, like, right? So I think that that's part of the reason, right? I mean, the Valkyries are sisters, but not, like, right, not in the same way. So I do, I think that there's something really powerful about that bond. And I think the fact that they go to such great lengths to save Conrad, Mm -hmm. something we see from his point of view in, in that book, but something we really see from their point of view in this book really deepens like that whole story also in a way I found really pleasing, which is what is supposed to happen with right when you, those family ties are that strong. So I thought it was really cool the way this book also, these books, I guess, these novellas like sort of build on the family mythology in that way. So let's talk about this because I think, so the two novellas that we're reading are written five years apart but happening simultaneously. But happening simultaneously alongside Conrad's book and uh, Sebastian's book and also Mariquetta's, I mean, Bowen and Mariquetta. Like, so ultimately, and Jen and and I have talked about this and we're going to talk about it with you guys too. (laughs) This, This is really the culmination. Untouchable is the end of an arc, um, like the sort of first movement of Immortals nice. After Dark. Yes. There you go. I don't even know how to begin talking about this because originally I thought, well, it'll just be 30 minutes on the first one and 30 minutes on the second one. But then I don't think that's going to happen. No. I think it's just <laughs> going to be this quite crazy mishmash. And I hope you read them both, everybody. <laughs> Let's do a really quick little plot overview, which is basically that in Warlord Wants Forever, Nikolai is blooded by Mist the Coveted. And then she she has makes a little bit of a sport of blooding vampires. We're going to talk more about that later. And she bloods him, and then, knowing full well that he'll never be able to release, like, have sexual release without her, basically leaves him in that state for five years. Yeah, it's not cool. Not cool, Mist. No, No, it's not even, like, blue balls. I'm not even sure what that is anymore, right? (laughs) And so he is determined to essentially, like, hunt her down. And he does hunt her down. And the same night he is out in New Orleans hunting for her is the same night that Nikolai, who's there to help him, is blooded by Daniela, another... Murdoch. um, Murdoch, sorry. 
Murdoch is blooded by Daniela, another Valkyrie, only she's this ice maiden. Well, she's part ice fae. Yes, right. Her mother was an ice fae, one of her mothers. From Iseargard. First time, by the way, we see a fae anything. And then their stories sort of like leapfrog back and forth. So, you know, like we kind of understand that things are happening with Murdoch while they're kind of on hold a little bit with Murdoch and Daniela. Interestingly, one of the things that I wasn't expecting uh, and I, I didn't process, I guess, when we read No Rest for the Wicked is that they didn't know Sebastian was alive. Yeah, I I remember that. But again, we see it only from Sebastian's point of view that he kind of knows they're looking for him, but is like, eh, I don't want to deal with them. They blooded me and I hate them. Or mm-hmm. no, they blooded me. They they brought me back as a vampire. But yeah, I mean, all those details just, you know, this many books later, you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I think the story of Mistin um, Nikolai, I feel like wraps up in a much tighter fashion right like they sort of he well there's the chain i think we'll talk about that later too we're definitely gonna have some chain conversation (laughs) right he he essentially says you're gonna stay with me for a couple weeks and we're gonna figure this out we'll just put a pin on that there and but the story of of daniella and murdoch takes months and months to unfold he ends up taking her to his um like siberian hunting lodge how lucky how lucky is that that he has a siberian hunting lodge because it's the only place in her life she's ever been that is like sort of the right temperature for her right and while they're trying to work things out between them they sort of mention the other books going by right like oh sebastian Mm -hmm. was in the talisman's high and we watched it and right kind of from the computer and then it's only as Conrad's book is wrapping up that Murdoch's story is kind of wrapping up at the same time. Well, the interesting thing about that is that during both No Rest for the Wicked and um, Dark Needs at Night's Edge. Is it Dark Needs at Night's Edge? I can't. We, okay, I'm going to look it up. I sound like an idiot. <laughs> it's Dark, Dark Needs, it is Dark at, Needs at, night. at Night's Edge. Okay. Um, so in both um, Nikolai's book... No, I'm sorry, not Nikolai. Uh, in both Sebastian's book and Conrad's book, Murdoch is super cagey about, and he keeps sort of saying like, oh, I have somewhere to be or I have somewhere to go and um, I can't tell you about it. And then Conrad notices that he's been blooded um, during that book. And then the end, the sort of Conrad Naomi moment, which then repeats itself in Untouchable from another perspective, from a different POV, um, is the moment where we realize, like, oh, he's been blooded. Oh, there is a bride and he's leaving for this bride. But who could she possibly be? Right? Right. And then Cressley, as we have discovered over the course of this series, as Cressley is wont to do, she just drops Murdoch and, like, moves on. She goes on to the the demon duology. And like I'm sure readers at the time were like, what is happening? <laughs> Where's my vampire story? Yeah. Right? And here it is in Untouchable. Um and just a sort of quick a quick uh plot wrap up of Untouchable. Murdoch has been blooded by Daniela um and uh the entire conflict of this novella. And it's a it's a solid conflict, is she can't It's be... also 300 pages. It's a long novella. It's a <laughs> long like, novella. What? It's not really a novella. It's a novel. We call it a novel. 300 pages. That's a novel. 
Yeah, geez, it is. What on earth? Presley. I think, what I the think hell, we call man? it a novella because it gets packaged in with this other thing and we just assume. <laughs> I right? Oh, Jesus. Presley. But then I was like, it's 300 pages. No, and Gina's story is 220 pages. Like, these are neither of these are these are not. You're right. They're not novellas. I don't know. What are we doing? <laughs> Anyway, we're going to talk about them together anyway. I think I think they belong together, though. I feel like we've made a good choice. Well, but what's interesting about it is that the conflict, the conflict feels novella-esque, right? Yeah. So, okay. The the conflict of Deep Kiss of Winter is, there. the conflict of Deep Kiss of Winter is, Daniela is an ice fae, and she literally cannot be touched by anybody who is not also of this world, this ice world. Um, she is too cold. And if you touch her, you will burn her. And if she touches you, bad things happen to you, too. I mean, like, you can – she can she can ice you. She can freeze you. Which is a problem when her fated mate is not an ice person. But what's interesting is, like, vampires are known to be cold. And yet he is nowhere near cold enough for her, right? No way. No <laughs> so way. I think that's also it's, – it's all about how things that seem so – I think it's just, like, a cool way of pointing out that, like – I mean, especially going into this next big arc, nothing's really as black and white as it seems. Oh, vampires are so cold. Lol. Also, I think what's interesting about this, and it's the only time we see it, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong. And ice dildo, yes, this is the only time. <laughs> it's not that. That's what we're talking about. We'll get to the ice dildo, too. Um, but this is this is the only one of the books where um, it is not enemies to lovers in any way. They like each other. She yeah. really, really, really wants him. She wants Aww. to be with him. She wants to be near him. She likes him. She thinks he's handsome. She wants him to be able to touch her. Like, she sort of aches for him. Like, there's a moment right at the very start after they've met yeah. where she says, like, I wish I could – like, right away. She's like, I wish I could kiss you. Like, if 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 I could kiss you, we would be in bed right now. Like, if I could touch you. She was really lonely. Yeah, so heartbreaking and lovely. Like, it's, yes. there's something very sweet about this novella. And it's, again, it's not a novella, but there are so many things about it that feel novella-esque to me. And um, this is probably a good time to say uh, we've done an interstitial episode on novellas where we talk about, like, what works in novellas and why novellas do work so well for certain kinds of stories. And... um. I've said in the past we saw DeShazer in, in Untouchable again. Um, and I've said in the past that I want DeShazer because I think he's such, like, a good guy who deserves right. love. But, like, he doesn't need 450 pages of, like, lost limb count. Um, and here we get, like, two really decent people who just yeah. are – can't figure it out, who right? Who can't – literally cannot be together until they figure it out. So let's start with Warlord. Because I feel like I have a lot to say about Untouchable, but it's not near as, like, much. <laughs> yeah, I, right, exactly. Um, right. I have to say about Warlord. So why don't you uh, tell everybody about Warlord? One of the things that's really interesting about Warlord is I got tasked with, like, the kind of thing I'm like, oh, yeah, that's perfect for me. I I have both versions in E, and I went through and sort of compared them. Because we should just mention that there are... She did re like we were kind of like oh yeah she rewrote it and I would go ahead and say now like she didn't really rewrite it she revised it now it's if you're a writer it's probably really fascinating to look at her revisions just at like the sentence 
and paragraph and chapter level. She was just breaking things up in a different way and that you can tell how the pacing is different when she starts to really like tighten up sentences and things. Um, a really interesting change is that in the original version, I'm going to call them the A version and the B version. Like A is the first one, B is the second one. In the A version, she calls him Roth all the time. And in the B version, he's almost always Nikolai, which I just thought was interesting, right? Um, and maybe that's because at this point, there's all these other Roth brothers. Yeah, structurally, it's probably easier. But also just, it humanizes him. It's kinder. Mist is not a, and Mist is not kind. No, no, not at all. And in, and by making him Nikolai rather than Roth, I think it, we, it reminds us that he's this man too, right? Um, and then there's some really interesting changes, but they're small. Mm-hmm. Like where kind of two or three scenes in particular where like the language is changed in such a way that I think it changes the meaning of their interactions. And that is because of consent. So let's talk about the chain. Yeah, you introduced the chain. So Mist the Coveted has a chain around her waist that is unbreakable. And she has spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to get it off. It's a punishment. I can't remember the exact details. It's not really super important, I don't think. But she's had it with her forever. She's tried to slice it off, burn it off. Like uh, She's been thrown by it. Like enemies have grabbed her by it and thrown her dangled who or her over pits there's like this thing is unbreakable and what happens is it once um nikolai finds her after this five years and is basically like uh like you cannot leave me like this anymore and you're my bride and you're gonna be my wife and she's like i'm a pagan (laughs) (laughs) she tries she like basically turns to run from him and he grabs at her and without even trying the chain breaks comes off in his hand and he says to her, like, stop, because he doesn't want her to leave. And she comes to this immediate halt. And he realizes pretty quickly that what the chain does is allow him to control her. It's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> because I'm just going to do it. Because, like, the second thing he says to her is, is come. come. And for a minute, you think he means, like, come here. Uh, no, <laughs> he does not no. mean come to me. He means come. Come for me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and it's a lot. <laughs> and I should say, we are not, we are being slightly disingenuous by saying like, oh, we waited until eight episodes in to do the two novellas together. We did, in fact, wait. We were going to do both the novellas together, but we also knew that there would be a lot of new readers to the series. And we didn't want you to start with Warlord. And part of the reason why is because he grabs that chain and then he says, come. And she just does. And I will also say, this is one of those your faves are problematic moments because I was into it. I was and I was and I wasn't. I don't know. It made me think about like, if this means something, right? If it's, if it's not, if it's a problem, is it a problem because we want men to be in charge of our orgasms? Is it problem? I mean, like, right, like, I sort of spent some time thinking about, like, why I didn't like it or why I did like it. Well, 
it's interesting though because it's also a Cressley kind of hallmark, right? There, so there are there are fingerprints of Cressley all over. Obviously, when you've written as many books as she's written, and you are you have such a strong what we call orth- authorial voice, you know, certain things start to become fingerprints in the text. Cressley loves a hero who says, "You don't come until I tell you." I mean, a lot of us do, right? Like, this is not a Cressley. Cressley did not invent this in romance novels. She's not the only one who writes it. But when she does write it, she writes, she, like, digs deep. And this, like, these heroes. Edging is a thing in her books. Yeah. Holding, like, insisting that heroines hold off on coming is a thing in her books. Um, And then punishment, if they can't, is a thing in her books. Like, and it's... It's all, of course, like sexual play. By the time we get into the Game Maker series, which I'm going to talk about at the end of this because I think it actually does relate. Um, One, by the time we get to the Game Maker series, like, of course, like all the heroines have safe words. Like, it's a a completely different thing. But, like, I struggle with Warlord because I get, like, intellectually, like, smart, thoughtful, feminist, like, intellectual Sarah is very keenly aware of the fact that this chain is deeply problematic right but like id sarah sarah who's just like reading for fantasy and fun is like i'm down then here's why because that chain cressley establishes from the in the moment that book begins that that chain doesn't come off so once it does like nobody can get this chain off so once it does as a reader you're like oh fade of mate He's oh, supposed yeah, to sure. have that. Like everything that comes after this is is essentially like it's faded. I think it's helping us understand that this is real in a way that the, her blooding him is not. Yes. Because in the in this book she has blooded previous vampires like for fun and entertainment. Is it explained how she does it? She just looks at them all sultry-eyed, and then they fall for it. Like, right? Yeah. It's a bit, like, also the other reason why we held off on this is because, like, I do think that... that And that ends. Like, that was just a mistake in the world building, right? Yeah. It's probably that Cressley wrote A Hunger Like No Other, sold a hunger... I mean, this is sort of, like, me as an author sort of, like, trying... I'm speculating on the business of it, but I assume she sold A Hunger Like No Other, and then she... They said, well, what if we wrote, like, a introductory you know whatever novella to launch the series and she wrote this and there are some world building missteps in this book because she didn't know sure but i think that that's what this then answers right like so mist is like for fun and entertainment and you know like there's no netflix so she's blooding people which is super mean like essentially you're sexually torturing a man for as long as they live after that. Well, and then she kills them. Although we get a lot of her, we get a lot of her anger at men later, which we'll talk about. But so I think when the chain breaks, it's the signal to the reader and to Mist and to Nikolai that this is a different kind yeah. of oh, blooding. Shit. Yeah. Right? And so in that way, I think it's kind of foundational to the plot. I don't think the plot would work the same no. way without the chain breaking. Because there would always be the sort of, well, how do we how do we know that we really are fated? Right. right? Whereas then when she stops multiple Valkyries from blooding multiple vampires, it just is. Right? But in this book, you needed another step. And once it's it, it does sort of code into the trope of faded mates. Oh yeah, really well because 
readers, first of all, I mean, any romance reader knows what faded mates really means. And so it does allow readers to forgive a lot of yes. the controlling pieces of this chain. Right. Look, the reality is if you at if you have ever as a romance reader, like like if if you are super into the kinky, like the 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 segment of romance kink that involves like control, BDSM, dubcon, any of that, this novella is going to work for you. And it right. probably won't get you as far as you'd like it. Like but cuz it's sort of like it walks up to the line but it doesn't step over it at all. There's no, like, no. it's not taboo. No, I don't think so. I wish Sierra Simone was with us for this one because I feel like yeah. she'd be like, no, this is a zero on the Simone scale. <laughs> I mean, and it's interesting because I even think some of the things that seem maybe problematic in the A version get dialed back and smoothed over for the B version. Well, can we talk about versioning? Because yeah. Cressley's, this is not the first time a romance novel has been dialed back and smoothed over. The most famous iteration of this is... Whitney, my love, which is a seminal text for the genre and also a seminal text for most readers who came to the genre in the 90s. Judith McNaught wrote a book called Whitney, my love. A lot, a lot, a lot of people believe like believe it's one of the best written historical romances ever. Um, many of us cut our teeth on the genre with McNaught, myself included. Like it, Whitney is not Whitney is not my favorite McNaught novel, but it is certainly up there. And in the first version of that book, the hero um, believes that the heroine has cheated on him. She has not, but he believes that she has. And to punish her, he horsewhips her. He literally yeah. lifts his whip and brings it's not it. not sexy whipping. No, like he punishes her. He beats Although her. Although no whipping is sexy whipping to Jen Reed's romance. Fine. <laughs> he beats her with a horsewhip. In the early thousands late 90s early thousands judith mcnaught it was an anniversary edition i think she took it back she rewrote it she took out the horse whipping she and now in the new version the version that you get online or you get you know in the bookstore um clayton lifts the horse whip and then he can't do it he's too Mm. far gone for her um he can't bear to think to hurt her and obviously do i prefer people reading a version where the hero does not beat the heroine yes but right. as as a writer and as like sort of and i you know as like a scholar of the genre part of me is like wait a second what are we what are we doing when we're rewriting these like what are we doing to romance what are we doing to the genre what are we doing to the history of it what are we doing the yeah. study of it the scholarship of it here's the thing right the things that we that we fix now get fixed in e within hours yep and we talk about Lisa Claypass a lot, so I'm going to talk about Hello Stranger, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a text where there was Orientalism. And I think she made the right call, right? I'm going to say this. I have questions like you about, like, is this the memory hole? Like, right? Like, I don't know where this is going to go. But there was an, uh, a large moment, like, there's Orientalism in the text where the hero essentially, like, tells the heroine he's, like, learned his lovemaking skills from some woman in India. And she doesn't have a name. She doesn't have a face. She doesn't have a backstory. She's just there to teach him how to fuck. And this is a sort of classic romance, old school romance trope, too, right? Like, this this speaks to Lisa having been ri- writing the tropiest historicals ever for as long as she's been writing, right? Like, we've seen... There's nothing new about this. This is this has been in romances forever. Yeah. Well, what's new about it, though, is the people who are hurt by this have a voice. Sure. 
right? And they can say, this is not okay. And it hurts to read it. And I don't like how I feel when I come across Mm -hmm. my own culture being othered in a romance novel that I'm not there for. And, um, and it essentially gets, it got excised from the text. Lisa heard it. She was, I mean, I don't know Lisa, but it seemed she was devastated by what she had done and how she had made people feel. And she immediately, she and HarperCollins produced, they rewrote it. They distributed a new version of the book and they fixed the problem. And I should also say, like, as a writer, if I fuck up, I want to fix it. Like, I want to fix the book. And I want it to be, I never, ever want my books to hurt people. I never want, I mean, but this is, so Sarah McLean wants to fix her books. But Sarah McLean Reader is saying, like, I just keep coming back to, like, if romance is there to iterate on the world, right, and to center women in the world and the issues that women face in the world, when we take out the horse whipping, are we taking, are we quiet, are we silencing a sort of past? Are we burying a past? And we are, like, we are bearing a past. But, like, does it matter? I don't know. I'm really of two minds on this. I will never feel, like, 100% great about either version of this. I guess what I would say is I feel fucking great about fixing a text where the people hurt are the readers. As opposed to fixing something in the text that's just changed over time. I get that. But at the same time, like, thinking about those old romances, right, like, all the the chic romances and the Native American romances and like Savage Thunder, like those books, do we take them out of circulation or do we start talking about, do we rewrite them? Do we take them out of circulation? Like, do we say, or do we say like those chic books were and are often problematic? Savage Thunder is problematic. Well, when I reread Prisoner of My Desire, well, I didn't reread it. When I read it, I didn't read it the same way I read a romance now. I, I think sure. I, I was like, I read it like an anthropologist. It's a historical text. Yes, I'm reading it as a historical text. So in that case, I don't want it changed because I write like I, it, I'm not reading it the same way. And I guess I'm wondering, but I, I what I'm wondering is, is that window basically so fucking short now that it took 30 years for us to be like, okay, and now it's like 30 minutes. <laughs> You know, and, and I just don't know, right? Like if Prisoner, I mean, Prisoner of My Desire would just never come out now. No, nobody would, pub- I mean, maybe it would. It would be self-published probably. Yeah, there you go. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think this is like a real question and it, it's. This is an academic question. What happened with Lisa's book is absolutely how it should happen. And if like my book comes out and it's problematic and I fuck up, like I want you to tell me so that I can fix it. But like if you're talking also, I think there's something to be said for the fact that something like Whitney, my love, it is a text that launched a genre, right? Like yeah. one might argue like without Whitney, would Sarah McLean exist? Like you really can, if it's the sort of butterfly wing, the butterfly effect, like you really can draw a line from modern historicals back to McNaught. So like if we change Whitney yeah, I don't know. It's it's a mind fuck is what it is because you think to yourself like there's nothing about that scene that is good. Like Clayton is a bastard of a hero. Like he's right. not but like a lot of people name their kids Clayton. It he right. worked for a lot of a lot of readers. 
maybe there's just no answer. I think we just like noodle it over and like we talk about it. But I will say one of the really interesting things that gets excised in the B version, and I talked about this on a previous podcast, is that um, Mist calls the nymphs hookers in the A version. She's like, those hookers, and it gets cut. The sort of like, I'm going to call other, these other women names. Um, And I thought that was really interesting. That should happen. Yeah. But it also like, again, taking the step back, like that's the difference between 2006 and 2018. Right? Right. And like, there's something really remarkable in the shift. And like me, and we wouldn't know it, right? If there were no B version, we would never be able to sort of academically yeah. say, like, look at how romance changed the way, like, romance started to think differently about sex workers. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think a lot about. I bet romance. I bet anybody, if 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 someone's like here has a, have a bunch of money to do a PhD with Eric Selinger at DePaul on romance, I would probably do it on gender, how gender is changing and how romance reflects that so fast. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, five years ago, the way we would have talked about like a transgender person or right, like it, it has changed with such speed mm-hmm. and maybe it hasn't changed enough, right, in some ways. But I think that... If you looked at the the way romance talks about and reflects like our world, it probably is outside of television one of the best. Well, and maybe even more well, so it is. because it's so focused on rom- it's so focused on relationships. Sure, and it's domestic, right? It's a domestic genre. Um and I and I use that word, you know, intentionally. The it's it's because it's women it owns a it owns a part of culture that traditionally isn't documented right so right it is a fast and these sort of these choices the sort of choices to re to rewrite and look i also think there's a difference between between i think cressley's choice to rewrite warlord um also speaks to like cressley trying to to the fact that as we write we we have to do better every book right like the yeah. we have to we have to represent ourselves if we're changing if the world is changing around us and if our views of the world are changing along with that world like the books change too and we have we're now in a position of having a luxury to change to sort of say like well if i could go back and rewrite that scene what would i do um and cressley's lucky right in that she's cressley cole and can co- call her publisher and say i want to rewrite it I think the other word I would like just to point out that gets excised from the text is um, when right after he breaks the chain in the A version, she says, you keep calling me wife, but I think the word you're looking for is slave and slave gets cut out of the B version. And I think that was a good call, right? Like, I think it's going to be problematic for this world that is mostly full of white people. Yeah. Right. Even if they're immortals to like be thrown around the word slave with any kind of yeah, you know, magic fair like haha. Like it wasn't funny, but it was like it's jarring, right, to see sure. it. And so I mean, she does the right thing. These choices are important and they, and that's why when we recommended that you read the one that you hold off on Warlord and two that when you got to this episode of the podcast you read the new version, it's because we want to be thoughtful about presenting the books the way that Cressley wants them presented. 
I think ultimately, though, one of the the other, I mean, I think the most interesting scene in in Warlord is um, when they first have sex in some ways, because even though Nikolai has the chain, he tells her, like, I'm not going to have sex with you until you tell me you want it. Right. So there's like the consent issue isn't it's, you know, he doesn't rape her. He does like lose his mind. She tries to run away from him and they have sex basically out in this field. And um, it gets softened a little bit in the B version, not that much. And the thing that is really clear is his like aggressive, like domineer, like domineering taking of her. Is she super into it? Yep. And so even if like you as a reader are not into it, it's not, it di- it didn't feel like rape to me. And it did to some of my friends when we talked about it, because it is like, right, he is taking her, but she is so fucking turned on right. by it. Well, this is, we've talked about this a thousand times. This is why point of view, like authorial yeah. choice when it comes to character point of view in sex scenes is very important and should be done for those of you who are writers, like this is about in this has to be about intent on your part as a writer. Like who gets mm-hmm. to be the one who is consenting, and the yeah. POV of a sex scene should be the character who needs to consent the most for whatever reason, yeah. right? Um, and I think Cressley has always done that very well. I will say um, this is where I want to talk about um, the Game Maker series. So okay, we wrap. Um, you know, like we said, this is the end of that sort of Murdoch, the Murdoch, the Roth brother movement. Right. Sort of first <laughs> movement of IAD. Um, we're putting vampires away until Lothair comes into play again. Um, there yeah. are no vampires between now and then. And then after Lothair, there are no vampires um, until well, sweet. Well, the Dachshunds, whatever. Oh, right. <laughs> Trahan. <laughs> they're, the, they're the are they the Dacians? I always pronounce it the Dacians, but the, whatever. I don't know. They're, they're, uh, whatever. They're like the Lothair people, but that's a separate thing. But like the main ID arc, we're actually not going to yeah. read all the Dacian books. So as part of the podcast, so I think we're gonna, I think we're gonna partner them the same way we did these yeah. two worlds. So um, to be discussed at a later anyway, date. Anyway, <gasps> so we're so this is really the end of vampires, but it is not the end of the vampire architect archetype for um Cressley because she is about to launch in what two or three years from this moment um in the books she is going to launch the game maker series which is a contemporary erotic trilogy about um brothers who are uh in an organized crime family and they are all russian and they're all like six foot seven and broad and they look like Murdoch and they dress like Murdoch and they're perfect in every yeah. way. And they are amazing. And we are going to we are going to do the three Game Makers books as part of the podcast. Um, but it's almost like what Cressley did was pack up the vampires, set them aside, see right. Lothair through because Lothair is going to be so critical to the second movement of IED, which I refer to lovingly as Torture Island. And then... <laughs> And then uh, once she packs Lothair up, launch these sort of modern day vampires. And I use vampire with like a lowercase v. Like it's really just the vampire archetype again. Can I tell you something hilarious? Please. (laughs) When I – my first Cressley Cole were the Game Maker series. And I remember reading 
some sort of interview with her where I, I like just wasn't, sometimes I wasn't a very close reader. I don't know where she sort of was like, oh yeah, the big difference is like, these just are like, like super sexy. <laughs> and so when I read, I was like, yeah, no kidding, lady Jesus. <laughs> when I read Hunger Like No Other, I thought that meant they were like low heat. <laughs> <laughs> And then I was like, oh, like, Cressley Cole low heat is still, like, fucking ghost pepper town. I just had no idea. It was so funny. <laughs> They're just not, A Hunger Like No Other just isn't the full Cressley, as Sierra Simone right. would refer to it. The full Cressley. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, That's amazing. Um, so, anyway... I think there's... Do you think there's more we need to talk to about Warlord? We so. have to... I think we're good. Okay. I feel... I want to talk about... So I have I have opinions about Untouchable as a writer, like, as okay. from a business perspective, and I don't know how interesting this will be. So why don't you start with Untouchable, and then we'll get there, or I'm happy to talk about the business piece. Um... I think we all are very interested in the business piece. I, I don't... I think I, like, covered the... Like, kind of plot enough, right? Yeah. Like, so it's Murdoch and Daniela. He's kind of keeping it on the down low. She's this ice maiden. They can't, you know, she can't be touched. He really is dying to touch her. I think the interesting thing about their conflict is, like, you're like, they're both nice people. They're both really afraid to commit, yeah. right? She's really lonely, and she doesn't trust him. He's been a player, right? I don't know that she's afraid to commit. I think she's just unable. Like, she, she's protecting herself. Like, Right, because he's this player and she thinks. And he can't, yeah. literally, he cannot touch her without hurting her. I like, know. I know. I, I really, I'm not sure that the, I'm, I'm not sure that he can't touch me without hurting me thing would have worked. Here's a question. Here's an academic sort of intellectual exercise. If this series weren't so sexy, like weren't so like sex wasn't so much a part of these characters and all of mm. their fates, could this plot have worked? Because I feel like I 100% believed that these two people could not possibly be together and work out if they couldn't touch. So here's what I here's why I think it's actually symbolically important and I think it's more so for Murdoch than Daniela. There's this really interesting scene where, oh, so he had been like a the playboy of the Roth brothers. And there's this really interesting part where she, where he says to her, like, I was just as committed to our like warlord efforts, right? <laughs> like I fought just as hard. I was just as committed to our family. And yet because we did different things on our downtime, I got tagged with being the like playboy and he never liked mm. that. So I think the reason that this kind of works as for his character arc is that he really needs to see that he actually is more than just his sexual proclivities. And being able to just be with her without that kind of forces him to grapple, I think, with letting go of that story he had about himself. Okay. No, it's, here's my it, problem, though. Yeah. I don't know that it needed that. I don't. It, it just doesn't. It's an interesting thing. So, all right. I liked Murdoch, but this wasn't my favorite. No, it wasn't my. It's not my favorite either. I mean, I I think neither of them are my, fa are my favorites. Um, uh, you know, largely because they are they're like Warlord. Just it couldn't pop. I don't think Warlord is anybody's favorite because it just comes too right. early in the series and like 
things just get more right. complicated and more more interesting. Um, I right. really liked Untouchable, but I liked it as an ID reader. Like, I liked yeah. it for all there of the, And this is where the business of it comes in. So it's basically like 300 pages of like, for, it's, it's a dream novella for a romance fan because it's um 300 pages of seeing all the characters that you've seen already that you know and yes. that, who you love it shows conrad you Roth. all the stories yeah conrad um it shows you all the stories all the like key moments of the roth brother brotherhood but from a new perspective mm-hmm. which is really delicious you get to hang out with loa in her like in her New Orleans shop, you see DeShazer hang out. You realize DeShazer is a smoke demon, which we didn't know before. And so mm-hmm. he has a swimbo who calls him to her. Um, you know, you start to see, like, there are these really fascinating glimpses of what are called low creatures, the kind of mm-hmm. w- who I assume will ultimately be part of the Provis army. Yeah. Um, kobolds and things like that. Like, the world building in this novella alone is really about world building the series. It starts like everything turns out Valhall, the race, the Valkyrie sisters that got brought back playing video games in Valhall, yeah. Thrain's key, and why they didn't use it, and what their plan is for using it. Like all that stuff gets just like a little like revisit. Yeah. It's like, hey, I didn't forget. Hey, I didn't forget. Hey, I didn't yeah, forget. Exactly. I mean, like it's 300 pages long, but it's probably 75 pages of let's talk about IAD well exactly and I think this is why I think one of the things I was saying before we started recording is one of the reasons this like doesn't doesn't really work for me is because I feel like it was the first time I figured out how to fix their fucking problem before they did Mm. right I was like hey dumbass if you just fucking drink her blood you are gonna be able to touch her get on it (laughs) and I felt like (laughs) Like, why couldn't these two dummies figure it well, out when I could? It's really interesting because <laughs> it's sort of – it happens right at, right at the very start. Nikolai goes to Kristoff and says, like, I'm a blood drinker now because I drink from my wife yeah. and or my bride. And Kristoff is like, well, what should we do, men? <laughs> And, and like all the men are like, what? That sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, right. And so Kristoff is like, well, I guess that's okay then, as long as you don't kill her, right? Uh, no. And that happens right at the start of the of the story, and like then it is about 150 pages of Murdoch wanting it, and yeah, Daniela not wanting it, and it's it goes on. Um, and you're right. Like, it does become very clear pretty quickly that, like, this is the solution. Like, if he drinks yeah. from her, she's going to be able to survive. Um, but I think that there's lots of other stuff going on here that I love. Not uh, uh, Leaving aside, like, all the little glimpses at the rest of the universe. You know, I did say in our novella episode that um, part of why Christmas novellas work so well in series is because it, it Christmas is a natural time to revisit all these other characters. And that's, like, sort of what she's right. done here. Um they literally end at Christmas sitting around a fire. Yeah. That's for real. Yeah, it's like a Christmas. Us. It's a Christmas novella. <laughs> and which I had forgotten um, or I, we would have brought it up on our Christmas episode. But I also think like there's there are some interesting things that happen that are echoes of what is to come. And I said this before we started recording today, but I really feel like Untouchable is like a Cressley brainstorm activity. Like 
she's sitting down and she's sort of like working out all of the different things that are happening in the lore and might be happening in the lore and all the characters who are important and like who will come back and who won't come back and how they all interact. It's the first time we see a completely new world that is disconnected from the other characters, right? Like it's the first time we go off plane besides Rothkalina, which is a different kind of thing because that's like that's like the hero's home base. Um, in this particular case, like being able to stand in like the ice world to meet other people who are in those ice worlds. It's like we're mm-hmm. start. She's really starting to say like, oh, I can go big. Like I can. Yeah, this, this is bigger. This world right. is infinite. There are as many as many worlds as possible can exist in this ID universe. Yeah. This is why I said, like, well, maybe it's a little bit business because it, it is certainly, like, all the Gina Showalter fans who picked up this series who'd never picked up a Cressley Cole book are now like, oh, this seems like a cool world. I want to try it. But it's also a little bit craft in the sense that I really do think she's testing things out. And wrapping things up. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So – there's a lot of ways in which it's like, okay, I have to close the door on the Roth. I have to right. I'm closing the doors on the Roth brothers on Thrain's Key. Like, yes, Catter and sisters are still hanging out in Bell Hall. Like all those things get sort of like wrapped up. Yes, they're still here, and then it's like Gareth and Lucia, which is what's next, are really really starts the Torture Island is going to kind of kickstart the Torture Island like arc. So I do think it's it's both like laying groundwork, but then just like really tying off like loose ends that still exist. I really the thing I really wanted to talk about is reading people's memories when you drink their blood. Mm. And part of the reason why is because I started to wonder, especially reading two vampire books like these two vampires right back to back. If it isn't cheating to have the way these men learn their women's like it's this really powerful act of empathy right ideally Mm -hmm. like and you don't get shown everything until they're ready i I don't really right but i kind of felt like isn't it cheating though like that these men can just like figure this all out without having to do the work of sitting down and like gaining their trust it's this really interesting shortcut. It is. Just, it is. It's a shortcut. It's a trick. Yeah. And that doesn't mean it doesn't work, but I was interested in it. Some of the most powerful moments, I think, for me when I read uh, romance and some of the most powerful scenes, I hope, um, in my books that I've written are the moments where the hero reveals his past, like his deepest wound um and invariably certainly in my books like that doesn't happen until right almost right at the end of the book um because it's it's an incredible act of trust and um i think that there is this is a really interesting way of getting that information on the page without forcing the hero to sort of unpack his own drama and i think um the trust piece here comes from I mean, it's it's interesting because the act of trust is the bite, right? Yeah, I guess. But it's not always. Like, right in this case, he he does it. She doesn't want him no, to. No, she doesn't. There's a consent issue here, too. Right. Well, I guess what I'm saying, too, is it feels like 
those moments where you like bare your soul and tell your worst story to the person you love should be emotional and personal yes but it's interesting because i don't have a i'm thinking about it. i'm i'm sort of being weird about it because as you all know sweet ruin is my mm-hmm. favorite possibly book of all time <laughs> and um, <laughs> and there's dreaming of memories in that book and it really yeah. works for me and so i wonder if I want, and, but I I wonder, right? Because in that book, it's the reverse. It's the heroine dreaming the hero's memories. And this is what I actually was thinking. Like up until this point, I think the reason it feels like a shortcut or a cheat is because it allows these men to get information, like right information that's really vital to their partner, to their fated mate, without doing the hard work of proving themselves trustworthy. Right. So then it's like this responsibility that gets dumped in their laps and we see that they do the right thing with it. But interesting, like like Daniela's mother, her fated mate kills her, right? So it also feels like this could go wrong. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting, by the way, that Daniela's parents were fated and her, her father killed her mother. Yeah, I thought that was interesting, too. Now, again, I'm not saying – it's like kind of I feel bad. I'm like, I'm bringing up this thing, and I don't know how I feel about it. Well – But I think – right. Well, I guess that's why we're doing it. That's the podcast. Yeah, right? <laughs> I, I, I think the thing I kept thinking about, though, is maybe the test then is what do you do with this information once you have it? And it's clear that they don't get all the information all at once. Mm-mm. There is some sort of, like – metering light on this thing right Mm -hmm. that only allows them to see the worst parts of it or the key parts of it when they're ready it's interesting because what murdoch sees in daniela's dream what murdoch murdoch dreams of daniela's memories is her time as a as a sex slave in a roman you know court or roman whatever it's such a trauma that he witnesses that you almost feel as the, it worked for me because as a reader, I was like, well, this is not a thing you would just sit down and, and disclose. To exactly. Someone. And it comes only after she said, like, I didn't want you to bite me. And now you're the second man who's ever touched me without my consent. Right. And she, and he's like, whoa, what? Like what? Yeah. And then he has this vision of the man, the first person who had done that to her in a sort of atrocious way. And then he sort of sees in, like, it is a moment where he's able to reflect on his own actions. I think the reason it also kind of works is, unlike when we tell our own worst stories to people, it's very hard to capture and name your own worst traumas. Sure. And in this moment where they they experience, you experience it as the person who was experiencing it, right? The burden of having to, sh- to describe what it was like yeah. has been lifted from these women. And yet the heroes somehow, re- like, they feel, like, right, they feel victim. They feel that, in this case, what it was like to be victimized or, right, or what it was like to feel unbearable grief in this case mm-hmm. or what it's like to experience loss from the perspective of the person as the person who who felt those things mm-hmm. and that kind of like empathy there's no way to do that just through conversation so maybe it has to be supercharged because they're immortals 
But I, I don't know. I'm just I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that. I want to put a pin in this and like come back to it anytime anybody's dreaming memories. I mean, we are going to lo- this is Lothair's whole thing, right? Like all oh, he yeah, wants right. to do is dream memories. So we're going to see him do it a lot. We're going to see Josie do it. Um, I think that's it. I mean, so that's it, too. It's like the continuum between when it's like if it's just this one person and you can like mainline their story versus it's thousands of people and it literally drives you insane. Right. Well, and we saw we've seen all the other Roth brothers dream memories, too. And we've seen them dream mm-hmm. like very different experiences. Right. Like Nikolai is yep. totally destroyed by all of the memories that he dreams of myths because he doesn't see the end of them ever. Right. Like he thinks she's she's betraying or she's been betraying men her whole life that this is the game she plays. But she, he doesn't see the truth. Um, Sebastian does the same thing with Caterin, um, where he does. She's Caterin's the one who who saved the small child, the who lost the child, right? Like in the the Viking mother and child. Um, they typically, when a Roth brother dreams the memories of his love, he's dreaming them, but in a way that he didn't. That he's not dreaming the truth. He's just dreaming a piece of it. But Murdoch dreams the truth. He dreams the real memory beginning to end. Yeah, but he also takes it from her in a different way. Or it's so much later. He knows her so much better. Or it's a way for him to sort of reflect on his own behavior in a way that the other ones are not. The other way, like, when the other ones are dreaming their mate's memories. It's confirmation bias. Yeah, it's like moving the conflict forward here. It's, it's, this memory does sort of instigate the dark moment in the book yeah when he starts to realize like what he's done it's totally the low moment because right after this happens he gets immobilized by the Mm -hmm. jordan guy or whatever his name is yeah p.s he's dreamy where's my ice hero yeah Cressley. hello a word i was like weren't we saying that we needed more novellas (laughs) i was like who would they be this dude and his fire maiden i want it i know Except it's the same story, and now we know how it's cured. <laughs> but I, I do think that, like, in that case, in that sense, I mean, right. Like, so because the world of this book, it did feel like I kind of could guess what was going to happen or how it was going to turn out. I did, I guess, find myself then reflecting more on some of these, um, like, the internal tropes of IAD. Mm-hmm. Like, I could read your, I can dream your memories now, or I can, right, mm-hmm. like, because there was more time to just like ruminate on them. Also, we start to see other things. Um, this is the first book where someone vows to the lore, but it doesn't seem to matter. One of the kobolds vows to the lore, but mm. um, there are a lot of vows that go on in this book. And Murdoch vows not to touch her, so we know at this point the vow to the lore is still not canon. But one of the kobolds does. I thought he vows to the lore, but it's it's almost like I swear to God, like. Yeah, it's right. A, it's a separate thing. So I'm getting really excited. By the way, this is one – I know we're super, you and I are super nerdy about, like, different stuff. This is one of those things that, like, when this happens for the first time and it's coded in, I'm going to be like, we're going to talk for 20 minutes about why it's now. <laughs> <laughs> now the vows to the lore are set in um, stone. Or just, like, how much – like you know you're so used to like thinking about these books a certain way that you don't realize you've like retconned in vow to the lore yeah. until you start rereading and realize wait this hasn't exactly happened yet. exactly 
or like her blooding multiple vampires, right? Like then those things really stick yeah. out and you think, oh, there's this thing in the world that wasn't working or that was missing. Well, so I guess my other question, and this is the question for um, readers or listeners, is um, were we right to make you wait? You know, do you wish that we'd started with Warlord? Um, do you feel like we've missed the boat in not starting with Warlord? Like, was there something that that you know worked for you that didn't work for us, or some reason why you would have changed changed this order up? Um, and uh, also, I wanted, and and I guess the other question that that I have now for all of you is, please hit us up on on Twitter and Instagram and um, all the other places where you can find us and let us know, like. What are your thought, thoughts on this this first movement? Like, do you agree that it feels like it's just getting bigger and bigger every week, every month, every not month, every week, every book? You know, I'm interested in all of your thoughts because I do think now is the time to sort of pause and reflect on on everything because in two weeks we're going to start um, moving toward Torture Island. <laughs> For those of you who are not I, who are reading along, um, yeah, I mean Torture Island. <laughs> It's apt, but it's still romance novels. <laughs> well, we're gonna we're tipping into the full Cressley now. Like, I mean, it's gonna happen soon. I don't know that anybody lost any limbs in either. Oh of yeah, these. I was gonna say I didn't get a limb. I had no addition to the limb count. Now there was a big old fight that Murdoch's in, where he needs like stitches yeah. and gets like really knocked around. And she but gets it doesn't stabbed. Yeah, but it's not like typical no she doesn't there's no even death like i thought at some point like well she's got this skill of like freezing people until they you know become blocks of ice like that's surely going to happen and it didn't all the deaths are sort of like the icier who come to fight you know kind of try and kill her and i mean but it's yeah it's in terms of like mortal danger to our actual any and in both this and warlord it's all emotional yeah i mean i really think these are Nikolai and Mist are just, they're kind of assholes to each other. But Danny and Murdoch, they're just, they're good people who just want to yeah. be in love. I know. Let them, let them be in love. My favorite moment of this, of the of Untouchable, by the way, is when Lois sells um, uh, Murdoch yeah. the gloves. And he, she's like, here, these are on sale. <laughs> give these, yeah. give these to your Valkyrie and tell her to be careful with you. Right? Like, I love that. Like, oh, let me help you out with God, this. I love Loa. I love Loa, too. Also, we learned Loa went to Notre Dame. We learned. But not. Right. right? Like, yeah. Like, oh, no. But that's like, she tells people she, she didn't. She tells even people she's, she's like, from, she's like a Caribbean voodoo priestess. But, like, she's actually, like, from Pennsylvania and <laughs> and went to Notre Dame. And it's really, like, but it's interesting because Loa has always been my, like, I'm so interested in Loa. Um, yeah, because she's so fascinating. But like, I again, I I keep thinking like Untouchable is just Cressley like figuring shit out in like a wonderful. I don't mean that in like a, it's messy and she's just scribbling. No, no, it's really, it's a really beautiful exercise. In I I feel like if you think about world building at all as a writer or as a reader or as a yeah. teacher, like. This is a perfect example of, like, how to really start thinking about the world that you're in. Like, I wish we could all write this novella for the worlds that we're writing. Yeah. Like, I want to write The Bare Knuckle Bastards Untouchable. Just, like, to sort of, like, figure it out. Well, and that's the thing. It feels like a gift in that mm-hmm. way, right? 
I think there's a couple moments I really liked this. And one is um, Daniela meets the like handsome ice guy or whatever. And he offers to kiss her. And at this point, she's pissed at Murdoch. And so she agrees to it because she's never been kissed before. And Murdoch catches them. And he says to her, like, he took what was mine. I was going to yeah. be the first one to kiss you. And I was like, oh. And That's so amazing. So and also, yeah. I love that scene, too. But I love the part that's in her point of view where she thinks to herself, like, this is nice. And if I could do it with Murdoch, I would never stop. Like, and it's so beautiful because also, like, I had this moment where I was like, oh, I bet those readers who, like, hate cheating don't love this. But, like, it's so honest. Like, if you have oh, yeah. never kissed anybody and, like, some dude was like, I'm able to do, like, I'm the one who can, you would. Yeah, you'd be like, sure. Because you'd be like, I want to experience this thing. Well, and he had kissed a couple people earlier. And so it also, yeah. there's like that parody, yeah. right? There's like a way in which she, and when he sort of is like, I can't believe you did that. She like throws back at him exactly what he said. There's another really funny part of this. And I'm actually going to record it and like send it to Eric. But I listened to the audio for this too. Mm -hmm. And there's this one really funny part where she is like imitating him. So, like, Robert Petkoff doing Danny imitating Murdoch's voice <laughs> is, like, and I was, like, this man can do anything. Put it on the list for Petkoff when we interview him. Be like, I know. I'd like, like you, you to do Nick's pretending to be Lothair, pretending to be. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also, like, you really get at the end when all the Murdoch brothers are together and talking to each other. I don't even know how he could have done that. It must have been. I mean, he must have been like, okay, now play me Sebastian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like, funny. there's no other way. It was crazy. But there were some really sweet things in this book. Also, we see Nick's, um, that I really love the, like, this is the first round of Nick's where I started to see Nick's being tired. And it was, again, I can't, you, like, I really, I can't say enough that I feel like, Cressley just like knocks this out of the park in terms of really like establishing what's coming um, because Nix is tired in this book and she doesn't the, her phone at one point she's on the phone with Danny and her phone is just constantly like clicking there's a new call coming in every like two seconds and she's just like everyone wants a piece of me and at the, during that conversation Danny says at one point like um well can I ask you this thing and it's like something related to Murdoch and Nix is like oh, I don't want to talk about that like I want to just gossip for a second you know and like it's really like there's a humanity to Nix in this book that you don't you haven't seen before and you know what? Here's like one other little really super interesting thing in the A the A and the versus the B version. Mm -hmm. In the B ver in the A version at the end um, of Warlord. She of Warlord. She says, I'm not preternaturally oh predetermined predeterminationally abled for nothing. Nix says this? Yes. And in the B version she says, ever knowing. Ah. Uh. Right? It's so Nyx the Ever Knowing is not like a phrase sure. in Warlord in the A version. It's only in the B version, right? That's what's so cool about doing. I mean, I know we sound super nerdy, you guys, but like it, what's the cool, the coolest thing about doing this podcast is the sort of 
close read of oh yeah where you do we did we have retconned a ton <laughs> of stuff into this series that we I just realized like while we were talking that I've been talking about vows to the lore forever if people are reading along with the podcast they have no idea what that means I'm not going right. to tell you <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to wait um anyway uh it's I think it's I think we need a wrap um I want to just give a shout out to Jen because um, I don't know if you guys on your podcast apps are scrolling through show notes, but you should because they're bananas. I'm very proud they're of them. They're incredibly thorough. They're like the greatest show notes in podcasting right now. I'm pretty sure. They involve copious amounts of research and links, and Jen takes hours every week to do them, and they're magnificent. Um, I also want to give a shout out to Apple. <laughs> Because apparently, if you just say to Siri, hey, Siri, subscribe to Faded Mates, Siri will subscribe you to Faded Mates. So for iPhone listeners, if you are not subscribed, you can just ask Siri to subscribe you, and that would be great. We would love that. Also, iPhone listeners, apparently you can just say, hey, Siri, play Faded Mates, and it'll play you the most recent episode. So that's pretty cool. Enjoy that little Easter egg. Oh, in iTunes, like on the podcast app, you can now see the um, the pictures go by, although you can't see the chapter titles. Oh. And that seems kind of new. Yeah, there are pictures. We have, All of these podcasts are also, this is because of Jen, they are all um, chaptered. So if you want to skip ahead to, you know, the part where we talk about carriage sex with Joanna Shoup, you can. <laughs> Um, and, uh, in that, and that section of the podcast, that, that chapter will have its own art. Um, Jen's fabulous. It's Harry and Megan, you guys, because I like to imagine that they pulled that carriage up into a more private place and enjoyed themselves. That's exactly what they did. That would, (laughs) for sure what happened. (laughs) They made a baby in that carriage. (laughs) Awkward. Sorry, Megan. (laughs) Oh, next week, we have an interstitial about Scotland. Oh, Scotland. We love Scotland. Highlander times, as they say on the Heaving Bosoms podcast. Shout out Heaving Bosoms. We love Scotland and, you know, like a, like our fun from there. Right. That's why. It's going to be a nice lead in to Gareth and Lucia. Yes. And then on the Gareth and Lucia episode, what is the name of that book, Jen? <laughs> Oh, Jesus. Pleasure of a Dark Prince. Oh, okay. Really? Who's a prince? Is Gareth a prince? I guess he is. He'd be Gareth McCreeve. He's the prince of the werelo- the, were- the werelords. <laughs> the werelords. Oh, my God. Write that book. Okay. Yeah, I, th- I think I was confused by that, too. Remember? I was like, Demon from the Dark, I got it. Pleasure of Dark Prince. Who's the prince? It's Gareth. Gareth McCreeve and Lucia. And I will say, um, in... My memories of this series, Gareth and Lucia, this is one of my very favorites of all the books. So I am hoping – I have not reread it in a while and I'm excited about it. Um, And Gareth and Lucia begin – we will – this is going to start a whole new arc. Yeah. A A movement. A movement, if you will. And uh, also in that episode, we will finally have our interview with moon scientists. (gasps) Oh, that's right. It's our moon episode. So get excited, nerds. Oh, I'm so excited. (laughs) All right. um, As always, you guys, thanks for listening. Um, Please leave us uh, notes, tweet us, Instagram us. 
Um, leave us a review on uh, whatever podcasting platform you listen to us on. If you love us, um, share with your friends and family. And thanks for being with us. See you next week on Faded Mates. I've been ordered to protect her, Murdoch added. Protect Mist? This is a considerable change from... She imitated his low, accented voice. Mist is Nikolai's enemy. We hate Mist. She's mean. His lips quirked, which seemed to surprise him. Then he resumed his scowl. Notice even on Siri, although you can't see the chapter tight or oh, on. You just turned Siri on. Ooh. Somebody just. Oh, I did. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Siri. <laughs> Your Siri has a sexy my man Siri voice. Is, um, my, <laughs> my Siri is a British man, which will come as no surprise to anyone. Sir, Siri. Uh-huh. <laughs> exactly. um, okay. Here's why I can, now I can't remember what I was going to say. Meh.